Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. The following is a select unit from COS University. In COS 100, Mark Meckler paints an inspiring vision of Convention of States and the future of America. You can take the full course for free by going to cosuniversity.com. Hey, Mark Meckler here, president of Citizens for Self-Governance and one of the founders of the Convention of States Project. And I'm glad to be here with you. It's really exciting to follow Dr. Tom Coburn, who told you all about his time in the legislature and why he thinks right now in American history, we need a Convention of States so badly and why this is really the only solution as big as the problem. You also had the opportunity to hear from somebody I greatly admire, Rita Dunaway. She's our national legislative strategist. She's literally a genius on this subject. She told you how the convention process works, exactly what you can expect, so that you understand how the whole thing will unfold. And my job here today is to present a vision to you of what potentially America looks like after we hold a convention. I want you to think about what a convention is gonna look like when it actually takes place. It is literally, no exaggeration, gonna be the most extraordinary event in all of American political history. Think of the Super Bowl and the World Series and the World Cup and the Kentucky Derby all rolled into one. Think of a presidential election layered on top of it and think of everybody in the country paying attention. It is going to be an extraordinary and a long-term media event. I figure a convention is going to take anywhere from 90 to 120 days. That's the average length of a legislative session. There's going to be a lot of legislators there. I expect it's going to take that long to get this done and people are gonna be paying attention the whole time. It'll be broadcast on C-SPAN, all the major media outlets will be, uh, be there, all the newspapers, all the bloggers will wanna be there. I don't know about you, but I wanna be there. It's gonna be incredible. One of the most important byproducts of this whole thing, whatever comes out of convention, is the extraordinary education that will be provided to everybody in the nation. You know, I know if you're like me, and I know you are because you're watching this, you feel like people don't know enough about the Constitution. Not enough people pay attention to the structure of our government and know our history. So imagine the scope of this constitutional education project where everybody in the country is paying attention. And what are we debating? We're debating the proper scope, size, and jurisdiction of the federal government. We're debating the balance of power between the people and the government. We're debating the balance of power, the appropriate balance of power between the states and the federal government. This is the healthiest discussion we could possibly have in America today. And I'm really excited to think everybody's going to be involved in this. You know, school kids are going to be watching it. There'll be lesson plans written around it. And I mean, little school kids all the way up through postgraduate students, college professors will have their classes watching it. It'll be broadcast on TV. It's going to be incredible. What comes out of it? We don't know for sure. No one can predict exactly what comes out of it. We know, and you've learned, it's going to follow the lines of the resolution set forth. There are going to be three subject matters discussed, imposing fiscal restraints on the federal government, imposing term limits on elected and appointed officials, and my favorite, putting scope and jurisdictional restraints on the federal government. Those are the things that are going to be talked about in this convention. What comes out of it in the end are amendments that fit within those application areas. So let's talk about some of the things that might come out of it. Now, I can't say exactly what will come out of it, but I'll give you an idea of some things that I think might come out of it. Imposing fiscal restraints on the federal government, what might come out of that 
is a balanced budget amendment. In other words, the government can't spend more than the government takes in. Now, I don't like that alone, but what if you were to add on top of it something that prevented them, a scope and jurisdictional restraint prevents them from raising revenue more than a certain percentage of gross domestic product or limiting, to, limiting spending increases or tax increases to population plus inflation increases. So there's all kinds of structural restraints that might be put in place on the federal government. How about this one? I love this one, imposing generally accepted accounting principles on the federal government. You know, the federal government has an accounting system that's different than what everybody else uses. In fact, private citizens would go to jail if they tried to account to the IRS the way the federal government accounts to us. So we ought to impose all of these restrictions. Imagine what the federal government would look like with those restrictions in place. Imagine we wouldn't be running $1.3 trillion deficits. Today we're over, what, $22 trillion in long-term debt. Imagine if we could start to make that go away because our spending had to match our revenue and our revenue and taxation were limited by formulas to keep it from going up. In other words, what it would force government to do is make the tough decisions. One of the things Tom Coburn talks about all the time is that the guys and gals in DC, they don't like to make the decisions, even the easy decisions, but they really hate to make the tough decisions, which programs to cut, where to cut. It really shouldn't be so hard. There's over $400 billion a year in waste and duplication that Senator Coburn has demonstrated. So they should cut those right away. But Look, people in D.C. consider these things difficult. They have to be forced to do them. If they're forced by constitutional amendment, they'll do them. So I want you to think about how amazing it would be if our government was forced to balance its budget. And there are some countries that have started to do this. The economic growth that comes out of it is incredible. The economic freedom that comes out of it is incredible. So this is something we need to do. And I want you, as we're doing it, to think of the possibilities, to think about what the future could really look like for our kids and our grandkids if our government was forced to live within its means and not, not able, not have the power to tax us to death in order to do so. These are things that are possible out of a convention. Also enforcing generally accepted accounting principles and transparency, we would actually know what's going on. Because today, to be honest with you, the General Accounting Office, the Congressional Budget Office, they all lie to us. And so we need to enforce these things, force these things on the federal government. I think the country would be way better off. Let's talk a little bit about term limits. So term limits, 80, 80 plus percent of the American people believe in term limits for Congress. We've, been, we've got people who've been in Congress, maybe if you're a little bit younger, as long as you've been alive. It's incredible how long guys like Mitch McConnell, or Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer have been in Congress. I would say it probably qualifies for close to forever. And we don't like the idea of career politicians. The founders didn't like the idea of career politicians. So imagine Congress limited to say, maybe 12 years in the House and 12 years in the Senate. Now that sounds like a long time, I realize for term limits. It's actually longer than the average congressman serves. But what if they were forced to move out? That would get rid of people like McConnell and Pelosi and Schumer, the real long-termers. You could cut that in half. What if it was two or three terms for the House, maybe a maximum of six years, maybe it was two terms in the Senate, right? A maximum of 12 years. That would give somebody maybe 18 years. It would be incredible to see this kind of rotation in office take place. The founders always intended rotation in office and we don't have it now and we need a way to impose that. I think it would be really refreshing to see a bunch of new faces, a bunch of new people in Congress regularly.
For me, I'm really interested in rotation in office for judges, federal court judges, and Supreme Court justices. Right now, we're having huge fights over every Supreme Court justice nomination. Why? Well, part of the reason the Supreme Court's too powerful, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but also because anybody that gets appointed to the Supreme Court serves 20, 30, 35 years. It's incredible. They're not even considering people for spots on the Supreme Court that are 60. 60 is not old. There's a lot of wisdom that's had between 45 and 60, right? 15 years, the prime of your working life. If you're a judge, you're hearing all these cases. I'd like the court to be able to consider a 60 or 65-year-old jurist. Can't even consider them now because what we need to do is put somebody on the court that can sit there for 30 or 35 years. What if we limited their terms to, say, 12 years? Think back to the founding of the country. The average life expectancy at the time was 54, and the average appointment age was 47. Now, some jurists, to be clear, served a lot longer than that. They lived a lot longer than average life expectancy, but it kind of gives you an idea what the founders intended, and I don't think it was 30 years. And I think it would be pretty good if we weren't having such huge fights about the Supreme Court, and if we could get a little bit more rotation in office, get some maybe older, wiser people to come onto the court with a lot more experience, this is a possibility we could have with a convention of states. The same is true not just for the Supreme Court, but all these federal courts. Statistics show if you look at what federal court judges do over time, over time they have a tendency to rule more and more in favor of the expansion of government power. After all, they work for the federal government. Their fellow employees on the federal bench are federal employees. The people who work for them are federal employees. There's a natural human tendency to default towards the federal government. It's not true for everybody, but it's true for a lot. What if we could remove those incentives by making it so that these appointments weren't lifetime appointments? I think it's a pretty compelling vision. I'd love to see what comes out of a debate at convention, and I'd love to see how the world unfolds afterwards. So I'm excited about the idea of term limits, maybe not just on Congress, but on federal court judges, the Supreme Court as well. And I think this is one that excites all of us. How about term limits on bureaucrats? Right? We got a problem now. We have these administrative agencies running the country. I think it's a cancer on the country itself. I think it's unconstitutional. We'll talk a little bit about how to get rid of the agencies entirely. But what if we could say the bureaucrats were limited in terms to 12 or 15 years? Right? And so that's it. That's all they get. And then they have to go out and work in the private sector. So maybe they come in at the end of their private sector career. Maybe they go to the public sector in the beginning and then move out into the private sector. But having people entrenched in federal bureaucracies for their entire careers is not healthy. It's creating a ruling class. They're separated from the rest of us. They don't live under the rules that they impose on the rest of us. They rule us from afar in Washington, D.C. We need to take away the idea of lifetime employment for the federal government. Again, founders never intended it to be this way. So imagine what it would look like if you didn't have people that had been there forever. I think it would be a really healthy thing for the country. So these are some of the things we could do under the term limits part of our application. The country would be a lot better off. But I'll be honest with you, more important than either the fiscal restraints or the term limits restraints, the core, the heart of the Convention of States project is about limiting the scope and the power and the jurisdiction of the federal government. This is where we've gone wrong. This is the disease. The other things, people staying in office too long, us spending too much money, judges in office too long, these are symptoms. The reason people are doing this is because the federal government has become so big, so broad, so overreaching, 
that it's enjoyable to be in Washington, D.C. forever, that there's so much power in Washington, D.C. There's so much prestige. There's so much money. That's the problem that we have in Washington, D.C. That's about scope. That's about power. And it's about jurisdiction. We need to limit those things in the federal government. And let me get really specific for you and paint the picture of a world potentially post-convention. This is a really big one for me, and it's probably the biggest. We have the Commerce Clause of the United States Constitution, the Interstate Commerce Clause, and that gives people the power to, uh, or it gives the federal government the power to regulate interstate commerce. What's that mean? The question is first, what did it mean in 1787? What it actually meant was it gave the federal government the power to regulate the shipment of goods across state lines. That's it, it was really narrow and enumerated power. There was a reason New York and New Jersey were about to come to blows in a trade war at the time. And so the federal government was given the power to moderate those things, to regulate. But regulate back then didn't mean regulate, like write these thick books of regulations, like books like you see on the shelf behind me. What it actually meant was regularize or smooth out. So there's this narrow power given to the federal government to make sure there's no trade wars. That's what it was all about. In the 1930s, you get a case, Wickard v. Filburn, where the Supreme Court is looking at the idea that sanctions were imposed upon a farmer who grew wheat for his own consumption and for the consumption of his livestock. Okay, so I want you to think about that. He's growing wheat for himself, right? The federal government says, well, you're involved in interstate commerce, so we can punish you for growing too much wheat. He says, wait a minute, that's not interstate commerce. I'm not growing wheat and selling it and shipping it across state lines. And the federal government's argument was this absurd, ridiculous on its face argument that no, you're not, we get that, but because you're growing your own wheat, you're not buying wheat on the open market, so you are in fact affecting interstate commerce. Think about that. In other words, not doing business becomes doing business, not engaging in interstate commerce becomes engaging in interstate commerce. In other words, nothing equals something. This is a magic trick by which the Supreme Court said the federal government has jurisdiction to do pretty much anything. What this gave the federal government jurisdiction over are things that you and I know today that just seem like a given part of the government, the Department of Education, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Energy, the EPA, and many more run under the authority and the auspices of this broad Commerce Clause interpretation. This is an incredible expansion of federal government power. It's an amazing time in our history, a really bad time in our history. So think about that. I would argue this is, I'm, I'm making up this number, but roughly 30 to 40% of the federal government operates under the authority of the Commerce Clause as interpreted by the Supreme Court. In a convention, I think we would, we can and we would, I would certainly suggest that we reinterpret the Commerce Clause and we do it in a way that goes back to its original intent. In other words, the federal government has the authority to prevent trade wars that involve the shipment of goods. And because of modern society, it might be the shipment of information across state lines. We can limit it like that. It would be incredible. It would do away with the authority for the Department of Energy, the Department of Education, the Department of Congress, our Commerce, the places that the federal government shouldn't be involved at all. Now, I don't know about you guys. I get excited when I hear that. This jacks me up because I don't think we should have a Department of Education. Roughly $4 trillion spent since the 1970s was with zero 
zero improvement in test scores. How cool would it be if that $4 trillion never got taken out of the states? It stayed home in your state for your folks, for your own Department of Education, for your local school districts, preferably to spend on your kids in the way that you see fit. That's how our system should work. What if we could do away with the EPA? Think of all the intrusion on property rights, the EPA now regulating every pond, puddle, and stream on every private person's property. You know, regulating our forests in a way, the, the National Forest Service, parks and recreation, all these things intruding on our own personal property freedoms. A lot of this stuff could be made to go away, returned to the states where it belongs. This doesn't mean, by the way, that it would be anarchy or chaos. It just means that regulation, to the extent that it exists, would be at home in your state. It'd be different in every state. New Jersey, California, New York, Illinois, more liberal states would be different than Texas or Kansas or Oklahoma or Nebraska. That's how it was always intended to be. How cool is that, that our education system would be different in all these given states, that these states would be free to experiment, to do what Americans are so extraordinary at, which is to exercise our genius and our freedom and our ideas in our own states with our own people in our own way and see what works. It would be an incredible renaissance in America if we free the American people and free the American states to act independently of each other. The only exception would be to me is you have fundamental constitutional restraints placed by our constitution itself providing basic guarantees of freedom and rights, rights that are God-given in the first place, but the government is supposed to protect. That's what the Constitution was meant to do, not all this other stuff. So if I'm going to paint a vision, I think the vision looks like this. You take our Constitution from what it is today, which is this big, giant, bloated document with about 3,000 pages of Supreme Court decisions, and you cut it back down to something a lot closer to what the original Constitution looked like. Most of you carry one of those around, a pamphlet, in your breast pocket. And so this is what we can actually do with a convention. It's so much more than we can do with any other kind of politics in our country today. And I'm not telling you not to be engaged in elections. You should be. We have a basic civic obligation to be engaged on our elections, to put the best possible people we can, not only in Washington, D.C., but in our state houses. You can and you should be involved in those things. But we also need fundamental structural reform. That's what comes out of a convention of states. And in the end, what you get out of it is a country that looks a lot more structurally like the country that you know that you've read about that the founders intended. It means that you're more free. It means that your kids and your grandkids are more free. And that freedom, that leads to prosperity. They will be free and prosperous people. That's the gift that you and I and everybody else who is involved in Convention of States are working to give to our kids and grandkids freedom and prosperity. That's our history. That's our heritage. I think one of the most special things about our heritage as a country, and it's reflected in the Convention of States movement, is the idea of self-governance. It's a unique idea in, Amer in, in America compared to the rest of the world. It's a unique idea in human history, really. The idea that we actually have the right to govern ourselves. Not only the right, we have the capacity to govern ourselves. I ask people all the time, do you think that Washington DC should run your life or do you think that you should run your life? Who decides? Everybody, left, right, center, they don't care. They say I should decide for my family, me. My community should decide, my church should decide, my school should decide. 
People believe in governing themselves personally at home and in their local communities and maybe for the bigger things in their states. Most people don't believe that governance should come from Washington, D.C. I want to add this, too, because I think this is really important. We live in really polarized times, and I hate this. It really bothers me when I turn on TV and just listen to the rhetoric, and it comes from both sides, that all the hate and the yelling and that everybody dislikes each other. This is really bad for our country. And a big part of this comes from the way we are structurally governed today. This is what I mean by that. You know, when you have a Barack Obama presidency and you have a Democratic Congress, people like me and maybe a lot of you watching don't like what they do very much. We're frustrated and we'll watch the policies they put in place and they make us angry. We'll listen to the things they do. Maybe the way if the Supreme Court is more liberal, we don't like the decisions they make that they impose on us. Nine people in robes, it's usually one person in a robe making a decision. We're really frustrated. The flip side of that is you have a lot of people right now, they don't like Donald Trump. They don't like President Trump's administration. They don't like a Republican Congress. They're concerned about a Supreme Court becoming more conservative. So there are people in the country, close to 50% of the country, that don't like that stuff. And they're going to be frustrated with all the decisions. We see the hyperbole on television every night. They're going to be frustrated with everything coming out of Washington, D.C. And you know what? I may like the policy, some of it coming out of Washington, D.C., but I just don't want them making the decisions. So think about this vision. What if we remove a huge chunk of that power from Washington, D.C.? So that whether it's the Obama administration or the Trump administration, they don't have near so much effect on us. We all wouldn't have to be so engaged in all this stuff going on on Fox News and MSNBC every night and, and the fights between the talking heads and the fights between the parties. We could worry more about what's going on at home. That would be so cool. And it would bring the temperature down and it would bring the hatred down. You know, states are a lot more homogenous than the nation at large. There's individual cultures. Texas is very different than California. Texans are different than Californians, right? I'm, that's a generalization. I mean, certainly there are liberal people in Texas and conservative people in California, but there's a larger population base of conservatives in Texas and liberals in California. So California should be governed in a more liberal way and Texas in a more conservative way. People would be a lot happier. There would be a lot less conflict. And I'm all for less conflict in the country. We have a lot more in common than we have different between us. We all love our families. We all want people to be prosperous and well-fed and employed and clothed and housed. We're all looking for those same things. We have different methodologies for achieving those things. And so when Washington imposes a one-size-fits-all fix, 50% of us are pissed off. We need to take that power away from them and give it back to the states. Think how awesome that would be. Think what it would be like if all the states could do what the people in the states believe. Think about how important this is. Can you talk to your congressman? How often do you talk to your congressman? How many times have you met with your congressman? You can try, and you might be able to get a meeting over time after asking for what's well, hard. They're really busy. To their defense, it's over 700,000 people per congressional district. Now, compare that to sitting down for a meeting with your local state rep. That's pretty easy. Usually, you can do it without an appointment. You can, if you go to the Capitol, you can probably go by their office, find a time they'll be available, and sit down with them. That's a big deal. That's governance close to the people. That's what comes out of a convention of states. It's really empowering. If you haven't done it, come with us sometime to your state capitol. Sit down and talk to your state rep. You know, generally, relatively nice people. They're your neighbors. They live somewhere near you in your state. 
They probably shop at the same stores. They go to the same churches. Their kids have been involved in the same little league or soccer leagues. That's governance close to the people. That's what comes out of a convention of states. That was the vision of the founders for the United States of America. So you've seen the big picture here. You've heard from Senator Coburn why it's so important at this time in history to call a convention of states. His view from under the Capitol Dome in Washington, D.C. He saw the swamp up close and personal in the House and the Senate, and he figured out no way to fix it there. You heard from Rita Dunaway. She explained to you how the whole process works. And I hope sitting here with me for 15, 20 minutes has given you a vision for where we're headed after we have a convention of states. This is what's possible. We will conduct the greatest experiment, the greatest educational project in American political history. And in the end, what we're going to get is a country that's a lot better because it'll be freer and you'll be more in control of what happens. And your kids are going to be more prosperous and more free over the long term. I'm really excited about the project. Hopefully you catch a little bit of my enthusiasm. I really believe we're going to accomplish this. That's why I'm so engaged. That's why I've dedicated my life to it. And that's why I'm going to issue a challenge to you right now. I've dedicated my life to this. My wife, Patty, works with me full time. You know, my kids are in and out of being involved as well. My daughter is off at college, but she goes and speaks at events about Convention of States. My son's coming out of the Marine Corps. He's done a lot of stuff for Convention of States. And I know lots and lots of people and friends and family that are involved in the movement as well. Now it's your turn. You've seen this. You've gotten all this education. What are you going to do with all of this, right? I hope you're as excited as I am. And if you are, you're asking, so <laughs> what can I do now? How do I get involved? And the answer is you can get involved. And there's all kinds of ways and all kinds of levels you can get involved. And every little bit helps. What you need to do is you need to go to the website and you need to sign up and get ready to volunteer. You need to watch some more courses. Get more educated. Learn more about your country. Learn more about Article 5. Learn about all these incredible changes that we can make. Maybe you volunteer to be a district captain to organize people in a district in your state where you live, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers. Maybe you decide you love it so much you want to step up into state leadership. Look, whatever you want to do, we're going to make room for you. This is one of the incredible things about Convention of States, right? If you want to step up and you want to lead, I, I'll tell you for sure, trust me, there's room for you to lead. We literally have kids that are helping lead. We have one kid in our organization now leading our national youth effort. He's one of our leaders. He started with us as a district captain when he was 12 and a half years old, right? So if a 12 and a half year old can do it, I think you can do it. I heard a story just this week, incredible story of a woman named Mary who got involved. She became a district captain. Mary's 86 years old. She's gone out to her entire apartment complex, got 80 people, 78 people to sign petitions. That wasn't enough for her. Her goal was 200. So she went to the grocery store, signed up everybody in line and went around the shopping center getting people to sign petitions. She does training for us now, 86 years old. Mary says, if I can do it, anybody can do it. 12 and a half, 86. We got people younger than that and we got people older than that. There's room and there's a place for everybody. So I would challenge you, get educated, get involved, Become part of saving your country. I know you're frustrated. I know you're disappointed with what's going on in Washington, D.C. Who isn't? So we can sit around. We can yell at the TV. We can complain to our neighbors. We, we all do this. Or we can do that plus getting involved. So it's time for you to get involved. And I'm going to give you one last big challenge, which is you can get involved by being an activist. 
which is really pledging to be like the founder said, right? Lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. So if you work, you've got your life in the movement. You've got your honor in the movement. We trust you to be honorable and kind and, and truthful and operate with integrity and ethics. And the last part is your fortune. I don't need your whole fortune though, right? Not a big ask. Here's what I would say you could do. We have this incredible program going on, which is called five for five, five bucks for article five, right? And what I would ask that you do is just get signed up like I did and give five bucks a month for article five. If we get a million people to do five for five, that's the budget I think we need to get us all the way to convention. A million people, five bucks a month. Nobody has to do a lot right? It's a lot of people doing a little. This is a grassroots movement. And in the end, that's what it's all about. This is what I want to close with. What it's really all about is you. And when I'm talking about grassroots, it's not just a concept. I'm talking about you as a person. That's what grassroots is. It's you as a person deciding to be involved in a movement. It's your neighbors. It's your friends. It's all of us working together to build what I would describe as the largest self-governing citizen grassroots army in history. That's what we're working to build. That's our real mission. We want to pass the resolution. We want to get to convention. We want to pass amendments, but we know what it's going to take is the mission, which is building this incredible grassroots army that America has never seen before. You have an extraordinary opportunity before you right now. And that is there's a spot with your name on it in that grassroots army. And that grassroots army is full of nothing but heroes. There's a spot with your name on it and a little plaque underneath it that says you're a hero. Ronald Reagan said this is my favorite Reagan quote. He said, they say we live in a time when there are no heroes, but I say they just don't know where to look. That's what I say. They don't know where to look. I actually know where to look because I'm looking at one right now. And I travel around the country and I see them everywhere I go and they're involved in this movement. So it's your turn. Step up, get involved in the grassroots and be a hero. And I'm going to see you out there when I'm traveling around the country. Thanks for watching. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.